Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Robin Talendier. He's the co-founder of Atelier Wen. Robin, welcome. Thank you so much, Ariel, and thanks for welcoming me on your podcast. I'm super stoked to be here today. Hi, everyone. Absolutely. There's a lot to talk about, and I, I think we'll sort of ex- start with, you know, you're a European person from the watch industry that went to work in China and then you started a watch company that is an interesting combination of celebrating, I guess, Chinese culture and heritage, but really sort of uh, a watch in the European style. Uh, would you agree that's sort of what you did, or how would you define what you were what, what you're attempting to do with Atelier Wen, and especially when you founded it? Yeah, for sure. So I, I think Atelier Wen is is really like a watch brand which is aiming to celebrate both Chinese culture. And, and craftsmanship. And um, I, I think the European side of it, this one is, is one that is we, we don't really try to have on the product per se, but it's more like on, on the company itself. So we are two French guys uh, who happen to be like very linked um, to China. And we want to, well, share our appreciation of the culture and the craftsmanship through those watches to, to the world. So the, the, the Western kind of facet to it appears, I, I, I believe, due to our two like backgrounds. Uh, but what we aim to do with the products, though, is, is with the watches, sorry, is really yeah, celebrating the, the local culture and, and craftsmanship in a nutshell. I guess the reason that I'm bringing it up, and the reason why I think it's so important uh, as part of a distinguishing factor of the brand is it's the exact opposite of what you tend to see. What you tend to see is Chinese watch companies which attempt to look European in the sense that they're celebrating European-style watches, often with sim- with European-style names, and even sometimes branding. And you, recognizing that there was a large amount of interest in watches in China, decided to do something very different. And I think that that's worth pointing out. Would you agree that you, did you know that you were doing something unique at the time or did you learn later that this was not the standard approach? No, 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 no for sure. We we knew that we were going in the sort of like complete opposite direction of what was the, the trend when we started the company. Uh, as you correctly said, there's a lot of watch companies in China and I usually try to go for a very sort of like Western identity. Uh, the reason being that the bulk of the local watch market is still like heavily um, trusted and led uh, by Western companies and, and mostly like Swiss and German ones. So they see that the demand uh, sort of revolves around that and therefore they, they try to emulate this in order to capture part of that demand. Uh, putting Made in China in the spotlight and being proud of it and celebrating it. And, and, and besides like Made in China also sort of ideated in China is something that no one was doing because while well, there is 
well, truth to be said, like quite a, a negative bias around um, Chinese products. So you 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 don't start at zero; you sort of start at minus five, um, and and therefore there's more efforts to to be done uh, in order to convince people that hey, look, those are those are interesting watches. Um, but for us, it's really like. I, I was thinking was not like, oh, let's create a watch company and then what's the concept? It was more like, oh, we are both like really into Chinese culture. We want to showcase that. Um, myself, I was into Chinese watches. My, my co-founder, Wilfried, was born and raised in Hong Kong all his life, then also lived in mainland China. So very attached to that. And we're like, okay, how are we going to show this? And and, and, and and watches was the, the perfect medium because, well, I had this interest, those connections and, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, we, we were aware that this was definitely not the norm and it still is <laughs> not the norm. Uh, yeah. I have to talk about that more and allow me to sort of pontificate about it because I love that you did it. I immediately understood from the moment that you founded Atelier when, you know, really what the goal was. But I think that discussing the context is really important. Let's begin with the fact that uh, Asia is where the perception of inexpensive watches are made even though the reality is that a lot of the Swiss stuff is has parts made in China, there's still this perception uh, that stuff made in China isn't as good. The Chinese market itself, in, in, in the higher end, tends to overwhelmingly prefer goods from Europe. They like European or foreign brands. That's There's not always a high level of trust um, in, in some of the local brands. Um, of course, a lot of the fakes, uh, you know, come from, from China. So there's there's a lot of prejudice that is not the entire picture, but it is a legacy prejudice, especially amongst the the, the, the European watch brands. And it's so, you know, so, you know, I think impactful that it's actually translated the Chinese market that they themselves on a luxury basis only recently, very recently, have started to be open-minded to, to buying uh, luxury Chinese watches. Would you or disagree about the sort of taste of of luxury Chinese watch consumers, at least when it comes to the preference for European goods? Oh, no, I, I fully agree with you. Um, it's definitely spot on. And I think this comes down to, to a few factors. Um, the first one is that when the, the country opened, like you had Western brands going in there and they started heavily like marketing their watches and, and they did a really good job. Basically, they, they built up the brand equity really well over there. I think it's, it's one of the, the few examples, uh, industry wise of like, foreign industries like doing like super well for a very long period of time in China. Um, so, so they did this fantastic job well. And then the second one is that, well, as well, uh, w w when the country opened up, it, it was like, still like fairly underdeveloped and you had the, the first foreign companies like at least for manufacturing coming in there and that was mostly like cost driven so they were making like goods that were like more affordable that 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 were cheaper so that perception also sort of remained that um goods made in china or originating from china uh would be well um cheaper ones um so i think if you combine the two of them uh that brings you at least partly why the most of the domestic chinese customers like to prefer western goods um, we, we see some evolutions though that being said so when we mm -hmm. launched the company uh and we tried to venture into mainland china we we worked with like a big like uh e-commerce player over there and we would see that there was like a price threshold over which they they 
wouldn't buy like most of the people at least wouldn't buy Chinese watches. Uh, and, 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 and fast forward to 2023, uh, we see that the threshold has increased a bit, n- n- not too much, but, but a bit. Um, so there's definitely like some kind of like upward trends. Um, what, what I find encouraging though is that if you look at other verticals, other industries, um, this movement is happening faster. So if you look, for instance, as like, I don't know, IT and smartphones, um, you see that like high and uh, domestic brands are doing quite well. If you look at well, the car industry, like high-end electric car companies over there are also doing well and are, are sort of like accepted. Um, yeah, so, so, so hopefully too, like this is like a trend that we will see within the, the watch industry. I remember a couple of years ago when they changed some of the laws to make it much more difficult to purchase uh, luxury goods overseas and then bring them in without paying the, the luxury tax, the, the government, and I believe Xi Jinping himself, he started to encourage Chinese people to buy Chinese-made goods. There seemed to be a, a push um, to, to do more of that, to um, consume locally. Was, was that an effective thing from your vantage point? And was there also a push by the government to consider Chinese crafts or was it mainly for mass-produced things? Yeah, so you had those policies, you had like Made in China 2025, you have sort of like more like duties and tariffs and like certain goods. Uh, also, you had the huge like anti-corruption crackdown that sort of led to, to a big well, drop in, in the, the consumptions of, of, of those like foreign-made luxury goods. But honestly, uh, on our and it had like absolutely, I mean, almost zero, zero impact. I feel that for, for, for luxury goods, you know, those goods which rely heavily on like brand equity, brand story, uh, making people dream that those, well, I believe tend to be the, the last ones that get affected by uh, those kind of policies because effectively those are the ones which are the furthest away from, from being um, commodities. Um, but when we were at the ideation stage, so when we were uh, thinking about the Taliban, one of our big assumptions was that mainland China would be a big market for us because we could see like all those macro trends that you described and we were like, well, well, there's no aspirational watch brand over there. I mean, you do have watch brands which have existed for quite some time. Seagull dates back to 1955, for instance, uh, but they were priced at like much more entry level sort of positionings. Um, so we, we saw this kind of void in the market and we thought that that would be a big driver for growth. It turns out it wasn't at all. Uh, but yeah, that was part of the big hypothesis we had at the beginning. So where is the brand officially located? You're uh, in Paris, um, but you know, as a brand, it's designed to have a, a, an Asian element to it. Where, where is it located, actually? Yeah, for sure. Um, so actually, we created the brand in Hong Kong. We stayed in Hong Kong full time for two years, branding it over there, and and then due to that mistake of venturing in mainland China, we basically had to post operations. Um, I went back to France and I took a quote-unquote regular job in a private equity fund in Paris and Wilfried, my co-founder, like went to Singapore and started some other ventures. And, and during this time, while well, we, we thought about like what to do next. Um, so, so now the team, I would say, is like fairly spread out. Uh, you do have like three, three persons in Singapore. Uh, 
uh, one person in Shenzhen in the, the south of China uh, to, to oversee the, the supply chain and eventually myself in, in Paris, which I believe from a business point of view makes absolutely zero sense. Uh, but it is in a way a kind of result of like everything that had happened before. Uh, but then I, I, I go to China and to Asia like super frequently. Uh, so maybe I'm like in Paris 50% of the time and the rest I'm just over there. Obviously, the last several years in China has been tumultuous if you're if you're interested in luxury sales. Yeah. You said that, you know, going into China was a mistake in a sense. Was it because of the timing or are you actually able doing better business outside of China celebrating Chinese culture than in China right now for a variety of reasons? There's a lot of factors, honestly. So, well, at the core, you have the fact that the bulk of the customer is not like so first about the idea of having an, a high-end or at least a premium uh, domestically made and branded watch. So that's the, the first difficulty. Um, the second one, and which was like a huge one for us as well, was um, the, the cost of marketing, which is extremely high in China. Uh, in a sense, the, the marketing channels are widely different uh, there compared to the rest of the world. So all your Instagram, Facebook, Google ads, YouTube ads, uh, all your big medias like um, well, the ones we know, a blog to watch, Hodinkee and whatnot, uh, this in a sense has, well, that doesn't really exist over there. Um, so you have to use their local channels, meaning that it's as if you were running like two companies at the same time. And there, um, when you do targeting, um, it's definitely not, not granular at all. So it's not like doing ads on, on Meta or YouTube. It's, it's, it's a very like an advanced um, kind of targeting, meaning that, well, the people that you reach, they are usually not so qualified or not, not, not at all of much. And, and you pay higher to, to reach those people. So you pay higher to reach them and they don't really convert. So it means that in very crude terms, like your customer acquisition cost is extremely high. The second reason why, I mean, sorry, the third reason why for us it didn't work out in China then was that it was pre-COVID and uh, physical retail was still um, a very, very important aspect of uh, selling watches. Unlike Europe, uh, where usually the demand in one country tends to be concentrated in one city. Um, so if, for instance, you take France while well, you're in Paris and you're basically addressing 80% of the market, I guess you could say the same uh, with London and the UK. Um, in China, if you really want to address the market well, well, you need to be in like nine cities. And in all of those nine cities, uh, you have sort of like big, city at the city level like local champions so it's not like i don't know in europe where you can be working with watches of switzerland and being sold everywhere or, or pretty much the same in the us that you need to like strike deals with those kind of like nine big local players so so, so, so it's a bit tricky like it's, it's not very easy um so for us we just therefore decided to completely discard the physical retail but then the goods were expensive people were not used to buying does so much online, the prejudice, the customer acquisition costs being super high, all, all, all that combined meant that it wasn't really like successful to, to, be, to be selling over there. That's very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. It sounds like China uh, not only requires mastery of many markets, but there's also many gatekeepers. Um, it seems that, you know, that in itself is a huge uh, barrier. But I'm sure that there was a couple of people, of course, he did sell to. And my question is, what was the response from people in China? Uh, how did they like it? Did it? Do you feel like it was mission accomplished? Did they understand what you were going for? 
Um, yeah, so we, we, in this journey, we sort of like undercovered like some segments which had like a really good resonance with what, with what we were trying to do. So those guys really liked it, but they pretty much tended to be, um, Chinese individuals who had either lived abroad, studied abroad, worked abroad, or who were born abroad and then who were Britannies. And I feel that maybe having this kind of double cultural exposure made them value the local culture more. And in a way I can sort of like relate and understand. So, um, for instance, while I, from age zero to 18, I was living in France, born and raised there. I didn't really question much the idea. Okay. What's your identity? Where do you come from? Like, what's your, your country and whatnot. But then like for my studies, I moved to the UK and to China. And, and then that's really the moment when I started being like, oh, okay, like, how do you define yourself? Where do you come from? And how do you appreciate this other culture? Uh, you're sort of like immersed in. And I, I feel, yeah, maybe it's sort of the same that happened to those like Chinese individuals. They had lived abroad, worked abroad, and they could sort of, yeah, maybe like, like more their own culture and understand yeah. more the the importance of like celebrating it and like making it visible. So yeah, those those people really liked it, but then it's it's just it's it's sort of hard to to reach them. Um, so we had some ways we were partnering up with some local communities like Shanghai Watch Gang. Uh, we did like a few events. Um, but but still, you know, those are like one-offs and one-offs and one-offs. That there was no like such consistent way, uh, repeatable way of of yeah getting in touch with them. It's very very hard. It, but it sounds like you succeeded in getting the enthusiasts, even though they were difficult to court all the time. You you successfully made a good enthusiast watch. Uh, talk a little bit about about that. I, I want to talk more about China, but. You know what? What are your watches like? I mean, I I know them, but maybe explain to them to people. And who you know who do you mean? Who do you mean to have wear them? Like help position your watches right now in the market uh, of other watch uh, you know watches today. Yeah, for sure. So our watches are really like mostly targeted to watch aficionados and and watch collectors. I think this is also a byproduct of myself in the first place being one of those people. Um, so. In a sense, how it started was like, okay, what would be, I mean, what would I like to see in a watch? And, and then going to forums like Watch Music or Forum Amont, which is the, the French equivalent to that, uh, to discuss the project, to talk to the aficionados, to get their feedback. But because the, those ideas were mainly exposed to those kind of demographics, uh, then the, the watch has been sort of like heavily shaped to, to appeal to those people. And, and still to this day, I mean, that's, that's the case. It's, it's, uh, it's a watch which, I mean, maybe it's going to sound bad, but maybe it's a bit like, um, geeky in how it's made you know it's all those kind of like small details and features that watch collectors tend to like uh, so if we take like our first model which was called porcelain odyssey and which you covered and reviewed uh, there was a lot of such nice features so the dial was made of porcelain uh, hence the name uh, we had like a very nice set of like heat blue hands and we had like a super deep embossed case bag and those are the, the things that yeah watch collectors tend to to care about i think like a main a high street buyers well will will mainly be attracted to to the brands to the kind of like general public recognition uh to the celebrity endorsements but 
those are not really our targets. Our targets are, are really like watch watch collectors. So yeah, in our current model perception, I mean, we, we followed more or less the same recipe. Uh, instead of a porcelain dial, you have a handmade Kiyoshi one, which is which is really cool. Uh, we didn't go for 316L steel, but 904. Uh, you have a semi-display case bag, but we're still like that deeply embossed figures and, and, and a lot of like small, like nifty features that I believe appeal to watch collectors um, and it seems to, to appeal to them. Now, as a French person living in China, what did you admire about the culture, at least aesthetically, that made it seem like a really great inspiration for a watch brand? Because it makes sense. And obviously, it's an incredibly rich culture with you know thousands of years of aesthetic history. But what did you see in it personally? Yeah, so so personally, what I really liked was the whole like craft aspect. The fact that you had like so many like various crafts, which were widely different and very numerous. And in a way, it somehow reminded me of France, where we have also those hundreds of craftsmanships. Uh, some of them which are nearly extinct, some which are still over there, uh, some that need to be rediscovered. So in China, that's that's really the thing I liked. You know, you would go to like uh, those provinces, those cities, and 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 it makes something like really unique that you only find there maybe it's just like a variant of like a sort of like more mainstream craft but i thought that 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 was really really interesting uh the the, the richness and and wealth of that um so so for me that was like the the main draw in terms of like uh what i liked in in the culture um but also because uh i mean I, I came in, in into that as the, the watch guy. Uh, I was obviously like very drawn to to the aspect of, of Chinese watchmaking, and I've been collecting vintage, sorry, Chinese watches since I'm like 14, uh, because those were the, the only ones I could afford back then. And and that's also something that I found really cool, like you know, to to work with those watchmakers, to those big names, uh, to those like. Yeah, people like really involved in, in the watch industry and, and to do something together. So also that was a, a fairly big draw for me. Thank you. That's very interesting. So you've gone to events and things like that. And, you know, before people meet you, they see Atelier Wen, they see the brand is sort of inspired by, you know, uh, Chinese culture and they meet you a French guy. Um, are there any people that are surprised that you are maybe not Chinese? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, quite a few people actually think that one is a guy and that there's this one guy who created an atelier, a workshop and they expect <laughs> to meet Mr. One. Um, well, you can understand the confusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, Chi- and, uh, Chinese business names are very literal, aren't they? Yeah, no, they, they, they can be. And I remember there was this Japanese journalist I was talking to like on Instagram over the, the course of a few months and he was always calling me like one son. And, and then we met in Geneva and he really couldn't believe that I was the, the quote unquote one son, uh, because I <laughs> didn't really look like one son. No, I think like some people are surprised, but then when we explain the, the why they, they understand. Um, really it's, yeah, I mean, e- even though, you know, like we are, we are not Chinese. I mean, Wilfried, you could debate because he's he's born and raised in Hong Kong. He has Hong Kong citizenship. Uh, he also lived like five or six years in mainland. So, I mean, you could debate. But he, he's Western, but in identity, he could also be considered as from there. But yeah, then they understand as well the story that, you know, we, we just really liked it. And we thought it was unfair that it was only centered around negative perceptions and we wanted to show the, the side that we fell in love with and, and that we liked and then they're like okay fair enough um so yeah no people people understand it uh, i think i hope people who are chinese and who understand and who grew up in chinese culture and who understand the brand 
What do they recommend maybe that you focus on? Like, are there particularly beautiful or well-regarded pieces of Chinese history or, or culture that may have not been uh, may have not become mainstream yet? Because I'm sure they must have said, Robin, there's this amazing thing you should see. It would look great on a watch dial or whatever. Like, t- talk about some of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so sometimes we receive recommendations in terms of craft. But I, I believe, though, that it's like th- there is a... I don't know how it is in the U.S., but at least in China, I think that people are very proud of the area they come from. So, you know, someone from Shanghai, if you ask him or her... Have you okay, seen our sports fans? Yeah, I mean, that is the same. So you, you ask someone from Shanghai, like, oh, what's the best city in China? And they will look at you straight in the eyes and they'll be oh, it's Shanghai. And then you ask them, well, what do you think of Beijing? And they will, like, trash Beijing, saying, like, oh, they have, like, all the all, 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 all the kind of, like, uh, bad, bad traits that you can have in the world and that Shanghai is, is the very best city in China. So usually people that we ask, they tend to recommend the craft from their hometown. Uh, and they really like that. So recently we talked to a guy, like, from Hangzhou, and, and there, uh, it used to be like a center for making gold foil in China, but gold foil by hand. You know, they would receive pieces of gold and right. then they would just beat it, beat it, beat it over the, the course of, of many hours to have something extremely thin yet resistant. Uh, yeah, so we met those guys and they were like, oh, you should use that in one of your watches. It would look really nice. It's, it's much better than gold plating. And, and yeah. True, truth to be told, it's, it's interesting. We also met someone from Suzhou. Uh, Suzhou is nearby Shanghai, uh, but it's a city which is known for, for actually for the embroidery, silk embroidery. So also they, they pushed to us the idea of like doing silk tiles. So y- usually it just depends on where the, the people are from and then they recommend their, their local craft. But, but it's always very interesting because obviously we, we don't have the, the knowledge of all the craft over there. I mean, we are very, very far away from that. So it's nice to, to have people like, talk to you about like what is coming from their hometown and, and why it's interesting. And it's also nice to feel that, you know, d- d- despite like the fact that, well, most of them really want like Swiss watches, they still talk very fondly about this heritage piece from, from where they come from. So that's also sort of like moving slash like heartwarming um, kind of realization. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I have a different question. And if you don't have an answer, that's fine. You may not. But I've always been curious because, you know, as an American, very often I see Swiss watch brands try to celebrate other countries. When they try to celebrate America, it's kind of like a little cheesy and wonky. Like, of course, they're not American. And then they have even more watches, especially over the last, you know, 10 years or so, 15, 20 years, that are, you know, uh, Swiss watches meant to celebrate Chinese culture. And there's been a bunch of different ways of doing that. Just earlier today, H. Moser and ZK came out with their uh, special Chinese calendar uh, that sort of is contrasted with the Gregorian calendar. Interesting watch. My question is, uh, from your perspective, how how do Chinese people react when a, a foreign company tries to make a product specifically appeal to them? Because right? I think a lot of the times they like the European brands because it's trying to be for Europeans or as they see it, but it's a very different thing for a European brand to produce something that they feel is going to appeal to some part of the, the the local Chinese market. Do you have any any thoughts on on sentiment towards those types of products? Yeah, yeah, I know definitely a very interesting question. Um, there's many answers to that. Uh, first, I would start to say uh, I would start by saying that well, 
lot of the locals who hear about the brands are like heavily puzzled as to like, why are you guys doing that? <laughs> you come from the West. Why don't you make like Western watches that it is what we want uh, as a majority? So a lot of people are puzzled. Um, but I think like, yeah, the, 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 the local individuals we talk to tend to be, tend to be quite positive about what we are trying to do. I think it also comes down to the identity of the brand because we don't, market ourselves as a Chinese brand. Um, this is something actually that we thought about like very, very early on when we were defining the name. Uh, we were still in undergrad with Wilfried and we had this short list of name. And eventually the, the, the debate that we had was that, oh, shall we have a full Chinese name? Because in a sense, our watches are going to be fully Chinese. Or shall we, ha- shall we have a name that is more like sort of cross-cultural? And we went for the second option. Uh, so Atelier One, you have Atelier, which is a, a French word uh, meaning workshop, and eventually One, which is a Chinese for Wenhua, uh, which is culture, uh, the culture workshop. But we feel that by having this name also, we, we are able to really convey clearly our identity. We're not trying to disguise ourselves as a Chinese brand. We're like a French Chinese brand. It's this cross-cultural combination. It's a company with like Chinese individuals and, and French individuals. And, and now that we're growing a bit, there's also well, individuals from other places. But I feel, yeah, that by being very clear about who we are as from an identity standpoint and not trying to to, to, to be like fake Chinese, I think that that helps people appreciating uh, what we do. Um, in, in regards to the design, so those are done like exclusively by like local like Chinese designers uh, because we, we don't have the, the pretension of having a fine enough like cultural understanding to, to make pieces that are really meaningful and, and not cheesy. And I think what, what you were mentioning about like those Western watch brands trying to, to appeal to, to Chinese customers by making Chinese looking products, I think this is a very, very delicate example exercises. Some people do it really well, uh, but most of the time it just ends up being like very kitsch and, 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 and not Chinese at all, you know, and it just shows a very superficial understanding. I mean, look, every year of the this, every Zodiac, everything with the number eight, I mean, at some yeah. point it gets kind of pedantic, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and no offense to those brands, but it's, it's, very, it's very superficial, you know, like if you believe that this is Chinese culture. I mean, it's the same as if some Chinese brands were doing like hamburger watches, you know, marketed <laughs> to the US. You would say, oh, this is in no way the, the, the US culture. This is like just the biggest stereotype. Well, and yeah, I, yeah. I think the, the opposite stands true too. So some brands do it really well, though. I mean, you have examples, like you look at the, the Blancpain Chinese calendar. I think this is a very interesting watch. You look at the Parmigiani Chinese calendar. I think it's quite cool. Uh, but then, yeah, you have those like obnoxious and and big questions like yeah of the whatever editions um anyway, this no, 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 not usually kid on them but yeah so to avoid those kind of mistakes and and so as not to be kitsch and superficial and stereotypical we we work with um, chinese designers and, and the ideation process takes an awful long time uh we usually spend approximately like a year on a design um, really going through the concepts, refining, refining, refining to make sure that we have something that is like truly Chinese and modern and meaningful and, 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 and desirable and, and all that. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? 
timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by Brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. I know that there's a large population of Chinese people around the world, and many of them are, are watch lovers. Where are you selling more watches? To people who live in Chinese parts of the world or to ethnically Chinese people who live elsewhere and may have some emotional or familial connection back home but don't live there? Uh, I'm just interested in, you know, sort of maybe one group is, is, is a more, uh, more interested in the concept than the other. Yeah, uh, I think you're, you're hitting on something indeed. So we do sell to a lot of collectors who are ethnically Chinese or sort of like ethnically related to China. Um, that is a big, big bulk of who our audience is. So our biggest market is the US, uh, by far. And, and when we look at who our customers are, I think there's a good proportion of them who are somewhat related to, to China, be it like American born Chinese or Chinese individuals who have then immigrated. Um, and actually we interviewed like quite a few of them because at the beginning we were, we were very puzzled. Like, why? I mean, we, we, we had some hypothesis, but we really wanted to, to hear that from, from themselves. And, and, and most of the time we would get the same story, uh, especially for like American born Chinese, when they would tell you that, oh, that they are born here, they identify, identify as American. But you know, like when they are kids, um, they, they really want to, to integrate. So obviously they don't want to talk Chinese. They don't want to use their Chinese name. They don't want to eat Chinese food. Um, they really want to be like, well, all the other kids, like the, 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 the mainstream. And I mean, that's, that's understandable. Like every kid usually want to integrate and, and then they, they behave like that and they go to uni, they start working and whatnot. And, and then they are like, they hit thirties and, and they realize that, well, they have very little in common with their parents, with their sort of like original culture, with where they come from uh, a few generations ago. And, and, and they feel that, well, there's something missing and, and quite a lot of them are telling us that, oh, this watch is maybe for them a way to sort of reconnect. Um, so we were, yeah, we were super happy to hear that, like very, very touching, very, very moving very kind of uh, story. Um, but, but then we also have a lot of simply like non-Chinese related at all collectors. And those guys, when we talk to them, uh, we feel that the main driver is really the, the novelty. So it's, it's often the same profiles, like they have a lot of watches, uh, watches at very different uh, price points. Like they have well, all the mainstream, like Rolex, they have their Pateks. They, they, they really have everything that yeah, everything. And, and then they, they want like unique stuff. They, they want things that they have not seen before that they don't have. Um, and, and the reason why they, they get our watches is, is really that, that's the, the driver. Like they're like, Oh, 
well, I don't have a, a premium Chinese watch. I, I didn't know this existed. I didn't know you could do like Kyoshi by hand in China. That's therefore interesting to me. So, so I'll get one. Um, and yeah, so, so a lot of our customers as well, like have this kind of line of thoughts. And, and then when we dig into what they have in their collection, you know, they also get those Corona watches and Ming watches and uh, another day, like really like, uh, watches that are like very uniquely positioned, heavy on storytelling, Decorative, highly differentiated concepts. Uh, yeah, a lot of work on the dial. Um, yeah, so yeah, those are the no, the communities. Very interesting, and, and I was I'm, I'm glad that you talked about the non Chinese buyer because I'm I'm not Chinese and I really enjoyed the the first model. I haven't seen uh, the the follow up model yet, but I think for me, I think pretty much every serious culture that has history in this world has some beauty in it. And if someone is investigating that culture, knows watches, then they can find something beautiful from that culture and, and bring it into watches. And that's always such a satisfying thing. And on the European side, we have beauty from the English culture, from the French culture, from the Swiss culture, of course, the Italian culture, the German culture, in their watches. And it's their culture in this you know time timepiece form, and it's beautiful. And of course, China is going to have plenty of things to borrow from. So for me, I think at the very least, it's a curiosity as to what you can discover. Talk a little bit about the artistic process of how difficult it is to take that aesthetic and then to turn it into decoration on a watch so that the watch doesn't become kitsch or silly or not serious. Yeah, no, that's that's really one of the biggest difficulties because in a way you don't want to be figurative, but rather you want to find concepts that can be worked around and then applied to the watch as, as a kind of like format or canvas. And and, and, and and that's really hard. And that's why you need to have this really like deep uh, cultural understanding because otherwise, well, you, you'll take Chinese numbers and you, you'll place them on the dial or, or you'll put a dragon or, or, or whatnot and red and gold. Um, so yeah, so for us, it's really like, okay, so we, we define an overall theme and then within that theme, we, we look for those kind of like wider like cultural concepts uh and and then we we just think about okay how can this be applied to a watch how can we take this line of thinking and apply it to the watch i, I know it sounds very abstract but i'm going to give you an example uh so uh, our current uh line like perception um the red thread of it is uh, traditional Chinese architecture. And uh, and we identified this very interesting principle, which is called Sun Mao. Uh, so Sun Mao is an ancient building principle which consisted in making um, large buildings without any nails or glues. And simply speaking, they would imbricate the elements into one another. Um, and, and and so we, we took that and we applied it to how we build the dial. So if you take our dial, you have a dial base on which you have like indexes which are on it and then those indexes actually insert themselves into another dial which is kiosked and then within those indexes you have like a chapter ring which is locking itself in them so everything is like imbricated into one another and for us like that was like a, a cool and nice way to, to take this old cultural principle and to apply it to the watch have you made any mistakes in terms of some designs and things like that where you thought that you were incorporating the proper aesthetic and it turned out that you you messed it up or you did it wrong? I'm just I'm just wondering, you know, again, you spend a lot of time there, but there's there's always risks, right? In translating wrong 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I just don't think we've made enough watches yet. But I, I don't think we made mistakes per se, but it's more like how thoughtful other things that we do. And I feel that if we were to look back at when we started versus now, uh, at the beginning, things were much more literal. Uh, whereas now, I believe there's, well, simply like more more thinking involved in the design. So you look at our first watch, Porcelain Odyssey, in, in those sub-dials, like we wanted to, to pay homage to ancient time-telling system of China. And we simply like, well, put the characters for like certain hours within that. It was not functional. It was more like as a visual thing. And I believe that, well, it, it was interesting, but it was much less thoughtful than the example I just gave you about like the the Sunwell construction principle. So yeah, no mistake per se, but just like an evolution uh, of the, the creativity and the thoughtfulness um, involved in those styles and, and watches. That makes sense. I want to talk a little bit about branding as well as some cultural messages that can be best communicated as marketing statements. And I'm thinking about, of course, the Swiss, uh, as well as the Japanese for that matter, who like, when you think about the values that go into their watches, you can articulate a bunch of specific things that they're trying to do with it. They're trying to make things perfectly fit together or certain high levels of value, precious materials, accuracy, you know, in Switzerland, heritage and doing things the same way for a long time is valued. And my question is, as you build out a brand that has the celebration of, of sort of Chinese culture and heritage and some of the lessons what are some of the things that you you are able to start saying, right? As you build the brand personality, like, are, do you use a bunch of statements for Confucius? Like, I'm just, you know what I mean? Like, how do you build more of a theme around what it means in, when you look deeper than just Chinese culture? Yeah, no, but that, that, that's a really tough one. Like, in a sense, it's how do you build your, your kind of like identity but from a very sort of like macro lens you know not just the identity of your watches or even of your brand but more like okay what made it in china could mean and i think it's also part of what is exciting that there is no image or no sort of like mind space of what, what could be like a Chinese identity. You know, as you correctly say, like Swiss is all about heritage and uh, and, and, and and Japan is all about like the, the meticulousness and how everything like fits so well together and nothing is left to chance. But but for China, I mean, you ask most people and, and you sort of like uh, forget all those nasty comments uh, about me in China. And then um, I believe like it's pretty hard to, to get an, an idea of, okay, what is modern Chinese style? Uh, what are the, the key traits and, and, and the key drivers and trends? Like, so I would say that this is something that we're trying to build. But, I mean, at least at our very small scale, but it's, it's obviously like always a, a, a work in progress um, on our end. What we're trying to do um, is, yeah, is, is really to play a lot always with with the craft and, and to try to incorporate them in, in a modern way. So sort of having this bridge between the, the past and, and the present. Uh, we're also playing a lot with um, perceptions, depth, reflections, uh, all, all those kind of like optical impressions um, that, that plays a big part in our design. And I feel that if you were to look at, at Chinese art, there's often like uh, the symmetry, the verticality, 
the death uh, are key themes that always like tend to to reappear. Um, so we try to have those in our watches. But then as to yeah, for 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 the sort of grander question like of what modern Chinese style is or, or can be this. Unfortunately, I, I can't give you an answer just yet. I hope that maybe in 10 years I can, yeah, be like, okay, so it's, we it, contributed it's, to building it's a hard it and question. this is what it is. Uh, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's still a work in, in progress. Um, yeah. I'm glad you're thinking about it. I mean, I, again, as I said, it's a hard question. And if you ask most Swiss brands, they won't even be able to tell you, even though it's the same thing as their five competitors. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so it's it, it is a hard thing, but as the concept of the brand evolves, and there will be more, there will be more companies like Atelier when you will have more competitors. And I think as it hap- as that happens, there'll be more statements made. I have heard that unlike cities in Europe where you are raised around a bunch of beautiful old things, whether it's architecture uh, or statues or art in museums, in not all but many places in Asia. Uh, you don't necessarily have as much um, old structures and things to admire for a variety of reasons, but the cities are, um, you know, either maybe more modern or contemporary, um, and that that has something to do with sort of aesthetic preferences, especially where you know if you grow up in Paris, a beautiful city, like you know, you just know what beautiful things like look like because you've been around it. Talk a little bit about how that may have an impact, or maybe even a negative impact on the ability for, for for Chinese people to even recognize their own culture if, as what I hear is true, they don't actually see a lot of it around them? Well, I, I, I'm not sure this is like 100% like true. Like, it's true that cities are mostly modern, even though it's very hard to make like some, some general statements about that. Uh, what is true is that well, the country has changed tremendously in the past 30 years uh, when it opened, like, yeah, it has been changing and it's still changing very quickly. So cities that once were like very small or even villages became like sprawling like urban centers with, with a lot of like skyscrapers, a lot of like ancient buildings were destroyed or maybe relocated. But 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 not everything. Like you know that there's a lot that has been conserved, that there's a lot that is still there and, and there has been a lot of effort to to preserve this heritage and this patrimony. So I, I, I'm not so sure. Um, the environment itself, like, has that big of an impact. Um, but then, like, not being born and raised in China and not having lived through those, those, well, years of, of changes, it, it's a bit hard for me to put myself in, in the shoes. Um, if I were to look at my own background, well, I actually am not from Paris. I'm from Marseille. And Marseille is not okay. a city with, with a lot of monuments. Uh, it's a city that yeah, was, not, not like w- 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 yeah, <laughs> it was once famously known for, for the drug traffic. Uh, but that's pretty much it. So I, I wouldn't say that I was born like surrounded by by beauty. I mean, Paris is really is a, a museum city. Like one building out of two is is, is a monument. Um, you live in a museum. Uh, Marseille, not really. Um, but but still, like that, that didn't really have much of an impact. I, I don't know. I feel this this whole thing is more about like the, the curiosity to explore, to discover, and then the, the willingness to, to share this beauty, but less le, le, less the fact of having been like raised in, in beauty, if that makes any sense. And I feel this curiosity yeah. can have it everywhere. Um, I just think it's interesting because most of the time, I think when there's someone making a, a new watch brand in China, it's actually a futuristic design. 
And what's actually refreshing and nice is you've taken essentially the European approach to design and you've just shifted the focus from one culture to another. And that translated something nice. And maybe it took sort of a European person to do that, but no one until now has added that level, uh, that specific type of branding to a Chinese-themed watch, even though there are, as you said, plenty of other, you know, very admirable Chinese watch brands. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, maybe also, um, I don't know, maybe this this interest or like heritage is a very European thing. But also, I think like what was a lot at play here is that when I went to China, like I went there as a foreigner. So to me, it was all new. And, and therefore, like, you know, I, I had this kind of endeavor of, of really like, uh, paying attention and exploring and, and really looking at all those things. Whereas I feel that, okay, maybe if I had been Chinese, like all, all those things would have been sort of the, the normal environment and you don't necessarily look at them this much. So uh, w w when I first went there, I mean, I, I knew nothing uh, about the country and therefore it was all like new new discoveries. And, and maybe this is what like made us like fall, fall so much in love with what we saw because it was like uh, a brand new thing and we went there with the mindset or at least I went there with the mindset of like yeah discovering and, and, and learning um, I, I think sometimes you know that the same can even apply to like foreigners going to Europe versus like locals uh, I, I, I'm in Paris and, and there's a lot of sites and museums and even the Eiffel Tower that I've never been to because I, I take those stuff for granted and they're part of the, the normal, normal environment I've never been to the Louvre I, I've never been to any of the big museums it's just like yeah those normal things around me whereas like when foreigners come here they they have this this endeavor, this, this behavior of like really discovering uh, the local environment, and they discover all the stuff. So, so maybe it, it has to do with being a foreigner and going there to to learn and explore. Um, and maybe this is what maybe made me so 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 sensitive about um, the, the the local culture. I mean, it's maybe. it's a good thing. I, I mean, look, I, I look sometimes at the the Japanese fashion interest in certain American things. And sometimes I feel like uh, the, the Japanese designers understand American culture better than the Americans, or at least they can, in, in, in sort of a, a small amount of time, make something that feels like the culture, uh, came from the culture and is beautiful. And so I think sometimes these third-party observers or curators uh, or, or you know creatives, they, they're able to see something academically, whereas when you live it, when you're in it, um, it's too much a part of your identity to, to think about it sort of from a, in, a, in an academic standpoint. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This I agree. I, I think yeah, this is the the point I was sort of trying to make. But yeah. I, I think it's it's nice that you mentioned like yeah, those Japanese designers who then like become really like focused and almost obsessed about like certain aspects of our culture that we may not even know about and who yeah then, with, like, with french really, culture as well yeah very, they're very interested yeah actually you know in paris there's like quite a few like restaurants which are serving french food and actually like very high-end french food and the chefs are japanese and those are like <laughs> japanese chefs who became like really uh passionate about that and 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 who went to really like refine their skills like really heavily in french food and and yeah i feel like yeah being a foreigner you, you you have a different viewpoint and, and you may de develop a different sort of appreciation that locals may not have, like, intuitively. Now, you told me that 
the last couple of years, you had to change your your business structure a little bit. Some of your team had to move, and now you're a little bit distributed. Where do you go from here? I mean, we <laughs> we're going towards an unfuture, uncertain future for sure. Um, but I think what is certain is that people like watches. I believe that people will continue to like watches. You know, you have your brand and uh, you have opportunity. What do you do in the in the coming years? What are the right steps? Yeah, I think we want to really stick to to our prime mission, which is celebrating Chinese culture and craftsmanship. And, and for us, the way of doing so is by making watches, which in a way can be quote unquote, like increasingly ambitious uh, watches that I don't know, incorporate like more craft or which design uh, is even more refined, even more like uh, so thoughtful. Um, that's kind of like the grand direction that, that we want to follow. Um, yeah. So in a sense, it's, it's making like increasingly nicer slash like more interesting watches and for us yeah one of the ways of doing so is having more like handcrafted elements um i think that by sort of like sticking to that uh hopefully we can then like continue to exist and and, and to grow over over the coming years and there's no sort of like old plans of, of venturing into other verticals or or doing different concepts like uh, no we, we have this kind of like red thread that we want to follow i think there's there's really a lot of explore uh, in china uh, what we've done so far is is almost nothing um there's so many crafts so many like for films yeah so many cool stuff to to show to the world and, and to celebrate um, yeah, that's that's what we'll keep on doing. Does that mean the trajectory of increasing the price point is probably going to continue? Because what I hear is that you want to have sort of a modest level of production, but you know, to 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 make that make sense, you sort of need to move increasingly high end, which also coincides with the desire to have more craftsmanship. Is that part of the strategy, or are you aggressively trying to stay in a certain price zone? No, I, I think it will like gradually expand, uh, increase, sorry, a little bit. Uh, not tremendously. I mean, my goal is not to be the, the Patek of China. That's not the goal. Uh, but yeah, naturally, I believe like prices will gradually increase a little bit because there will be more and more craft, but the, the value element will still be there. So. Uh, I'm not gonna like next year like hike by two x the, the price of our existing watches just because there's there's demand and and and, and less supply. Uh, that's not the goal. But yeah, maybe we'll have like a more ambitious watch, which let's say I don't know hand hand finish movement and hand finish case and whatnot. And obviously that will come a little bit more expensive. But I think that for the the price we will offer, this will be like a, a tremendous value. Um, and, and, and that's something that you, you can find at, at these price points. Um, but, but the price increase is not like necessarily like a necessity. Like who knows, we, we may find like other cool and interesting craft and those may not be that expensive. And therefore like the, the watches wouldn't necessarily be like that more expensive. So yeah, I think it's likely it will happen, but it's not a necessity per se. And, and the value will stay there. Like, yeah. Right. Right, of course, of course. The perception models cost a, a few times as the original uh, Porcelain Odyssey collection. And my question is, were you able to sell to some of the same people or at the higher price point, did you find that you had to sell to a different consumer demographic? 
No, we so some of so some people stayed with us. Uh, the ones that were like very novelty driven, I think that their sensitivity to price, um, at least within these brackets, was not really relevant. Um, so those people stayed with us. But then, like the the, the the collectors were maybe a bit more like price sensitive, who joined us at the Kickstarter phase. Um, those guys didn't didn't really follow. I think that by initially launching on Kickstarter back in. 2018, we also appealed to more like value slash price driven crowd. And, uh, and, and for them already, our watch was quite expensive because I mean, in a sense, it's still like quite, quite a bit of money. You know, it was like, uh, 500 bucks at, at pre-order yeah. and then 720. I mean, it, it's easy to kind of get the feeling that it's not a lot because we see watches costing thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds no, of thousands. No, it is, it is. But, but, but in actual fact, it's still like a, a lot of money. I mean, in, in France, it's more than half of like the, the sort of like uh, minimum like monthly salary. So it's definitely is a lot of money. So for them, I feel okay. They, they really like the watch, but it was maybe like the, the max of what they could spend like budget wise. So of course, when we increased like to, it was $2,000 for the pre-order of perception. That was, that was way, way too, too high for them, uh, understandably. But the others like were maybe less price sensitive. Those ones followed us. And then we had also a new, new kind of crowd who beforehand maybe liked the concept, but thought it was too, cheap uh because obviously selling the, the watches at 700 dollars, you, you have to to make concessions um you have to be very mindful of your production costs and there are things that well we we couldn't do at this price point uh, so those guys didn't join us before but now that the watch well, was a bit more premium uh they could yeah they they were certainly more interested in, in the product does it at all concern you that if you further increase price points you'll have to spend that much more effort on branding and, and customer acquisition? Or at this point in the game, do you feel confident that you understand the consumer and the market and that if you give them more watch, they will understand what you're trying to do and reward you with, with their dollars because they're getting that much more out of the bargain? I think that there's a bit of both. Like, yes, as you increase prices, uh, usually you have to do a bit more effort um, to sell the watches. But then it, it's really like it really goes down to how you increase the prices and, and what is the value. You know, like uh, I feel that if tomorrow we were releasing, I don't know, a mechanical perpetual calendar for 15000 um it, it would be a huge increase, uh, but it would be like a tremendous value. And I believe that the, well, the, the customer acquisition cost actually wouldn't be so high. Um, so, so there's really two, two components. If we look back at how much we are spending marketing wise to sell the porcelain Odyssey versus the perception. It's actually like cheaper to, to sell a perception than a porcelain Odyssey, uh, because I also feel that the, the product is kind of like more interesting, more, more finished, uh, more, more, it's more, a cool more, watch. more it's really it, cool. It, it, it's, it's more cool. You know, it's like more absolute in a way in, in, in what we wanted to achieve is there's less concessions. Um, and I also feel that maybe the, the value is more there. Um, so I believe that, yeah, as long as we keep the value and, and obviously, I mean, if we go to ridiculous prices, that, that would be another job. But if we keep the value and stay somewhat reasonable, uh, it should be hopefully okay. That makes sense. Uh, my final question really has to do with movements. Uh, a lot of mechanical movements are made in China. Uh, so far, you've had, you know, pretty simple three-hand automatics. Um, but you have, in addition to 
this heritage of craftsmanship, there's movement makers and things like that in China. Um, are you exploring um, things beyond three-hand watches? Uh, are you trying to do new things? I'm just curious where your mind goes uh, when it comes to the mechanics or the insides and, and your own taste as well as how you can integrate that into Chinese culture. No, very, very fair. Um, it's actually like a, an important topic for us to say. So, I mean, to, to answer the first question, yes, we're looking at other things like beyond simply free handers. We are working on the chronograph. Uh, we're working on a few, few, few other things. But, but then like we have this sort of like general consideration about the fact that um, if you look at like the current supply of Chinese movements, there's a lot in the sort of like low-end spectrums. There's a lot in the maybe like mid-end spectrum. Uh, but then beyond that, there is there is nothing. So I think that the movement that we use in perception is probably like the highest-end movement automatic like freehanders that that you can find in in, in mainland china uh, and then we are, we're thinking okay like you know what if we keep on upping the, the standard of everything else uh like yeah we have like increasingly cooler dials we use like very cool craft for the case but what happens if we cannot improve the movement and then we're a bit afraid that there may be well, a gap between the rest of the watch and, and the movement. So to this end, we're actually working on, on developing a, a new base caliber that would be in tune as well with well, the, the positioning that we want to have and, and what we want to achieve. So, so it's not a complication. It's, it's not like some, some, some weird features. It's, it's really just a base caliber, but with much higher end specifications. So 120 hours power reserve, very thin, very efficient auto winding, um, silicon escapement, free spring and, and those kind of stuff to have a really like high end base caliber that can be tuned with uh, what we will be doing in the future. That's very interesting. Um, and is it would it ever be weird to have a non-Chinese movement in there? Like having a movement uh, from Japan or Switzerland oh, yeah. even? Is that no, weird? It, 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 this wouldn't work. Because I mean, you know, our whole like, rhetoric is to say that we really believe in made in China and we want okay. to celebrate culture <laughs> and craftsmanship. And I think, yeah, if we were to have like a Swiss or Japanese movement inside, then uh, our story wouldn't be coherent. On the one hand, we say we really believe in 100% made there. And on the other hand, we have a Swiss movement because there's nothing, quote unquote, good enough in China. So no, we, we cannot. And, and, and honestly, I believe that we, we could have this like high-end caliber made, made in China. It's just that maybe so far there was no demand for that. But that's not to say that there's no capability or skills to make it. And now we, we believe that we can have the demand for that. So we are yeah developing it. That's that's very interesting. Um, Robin, where can people learn more about yourself and the Atelier Wen brand uh, on the internet? Oh, su super easy. They can just go on our website, which is atelierwen.com, and on our Instagram. And oh, they can, they can also join our WhatsApp group. So we, we have a big WhatsApp group uh, with collectors uh, and people from our community. So they, they can join that. They, they just need to send us a message like via our website, and they, they get the invite. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been the Superlative Podcast with Robin Delendier, co-founder of Atelier Wen. Robin, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ariel. Uh, that was really nice. So thanks so much for having me there. Really had a, a good time chatting with you. Likewise. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at a blogtowatch.com.